Chapter Five of Unleavened Bread. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Unleavened Bread by Robert Grant. Chapter Five. Selma knew intuitively that an American woman was able to cook a smooth custard, write a poem, and control real society with one and the same brain and hand and she was looking forward to the realization of the apotheosis. But though she was aware that children are the natural increment of wedlock, she had put the idea from her ever since her marriage as impersonal and vaguely disgusting. Consequently, her confinement came as an unwelcome interruption of her occupations and plans. Her connection with the committee for the new church had proved an introduction to other interests, charitable and social. One day she was taken by Mrs. Taylor to a meeting of the Benham Women's Institute, a literary club recently established by Mrs. Margaret Rodney Earle, a Western newspaper woman who had made her home in Benham. Selma came in upon some twenty of her own sex in a hotel private parlor, hired weekly for the uses of the Institute. Mrs. Earle, the president, a large florid woman of fifty with gray hair rising from the brow, fluent of speech, endowed with a public manner, a commanding bust and vigorous, ingratiating smile wielded a gavel at a little table and directed the exercises. A paper on Shakespeare's heroines was read and discussed. Selections on the piano followed. A thin woman in eyeglasses, the literary editor of the Benham Sentinel, cited, Curfew must not ring tonight. And a visitor from Wisconsin gave an exhibition in melodious whistling. In the intervals, tea chocolate with whipped cream and little cakes were dispensed. Selma was absorbed and thrilled. What could be more to her taste than this? At the closing of the whistling exercise, Mrs. Earle came over and spoke to her. They took a strong fancy to each other on the spot. Selma preferred a person who would tell you everything about herself and to whom you could tell everything about yourself without preliminaries. People like Mrs. Taylor repressed her. But the motherly loquacity and comprehension of Mrs. Earle drew her out, and thought at once, and forever the ice of acquaintanceship. Before she quite realized the extent of this fascination, she had promised to recite something, and as in a dream, but with flushing cheeks, she heard the President rap the table and announce, You will be gratified to hear that a talented friend who is with us has kindly consented to favor us with a recital. I have the honor to introduce Mrs. Lewis Babcock. After the first flush of nervousness, Selma's grave dignity came to her support, and justified her completely in her own eyes. Her father had been fond of verse, especially of verse imbued with moral melancholy, and at his suggestion she had learned and had been wont to repeat many of the occasional pieces which he cut from newspapers and collected in a scrapbook. Her own preference among these was the poem, Oh, Why Should the Spirit of Mortal Be Proud?, which she had been told was a great favorite of Abraham Lincoln. It was this piece which came into her mind when Mrs. Earle broached the subject, and this she proceeded to deliver with august precision. She spoke clearly and solemnly without the trace of the giggling protestation which is so often incident to female diffidence. She treated the opportunity with the seriousness expected, for though the Institute was not proof against light and diverting contributions, as the whistling performance indicated, Levity of spirit would have been out of place. "'Tis a twink of the eye, tis a draught of the breath from the blossom of health to the paleness of death. From the gilded salon to the bier and the shroud, 
Oh, why should the spirit of mortal be proud? Selma enjoyed the harmony between the long, slow cadence of the meter and the important gravity of the theme. She rolled out the verses with the intensity of a seer, and she looked a beautiful seer as well. Liberal applause greeted her as she sat down, though the clapping woman is apt to be a feeble instrument at best. Selma knew that she had produced an impression, and she was moved by her own effectiveness. She was compelled to swallow once or twice to conceal the tears in her voice while listening to the congratulations of Mrs. Burl. The words which she had just recited were ringing through her brain and seemed to her to express the pitch at which her life was keyed. Selma was chosen a member of the Institute at the next meeting and forthwith she became intimate with the president mrs margaret rodney earl was as she herself phrased it a live woman she supported herself by writing for the newspaper articles of a morally utilitarian character for instance a winter series published every saturday hints on health and culture or again receipts for the parlor and the kitchen she also contributed poetry of a pensive cast and chatty special correspondence flavored with personal allusion she was one of the pioneers in modern society journalism, which at this time, however, was comparatively veiled and delicate in its methods. Besides, she was a woman of tireless energy, with theories on many subjects and an ardor for organization. She advocated prohibition, the free suffrage of women, the renunciation of corsets, and was interested in reforms relating to labor, the pauper classes, and the public schools. In behalf of any of these causes, she was ready from time to time to dash off an article at short notice or address an audience. Her dearest concern was the promotion of the women's culture and the enlargement of women's sphere of usefulness through the club. The idea of the women's club, which was taking root over the country, had put in the shade for the time being all her other plans, including the scheme of a society for making the goldenrod the national flower. As the founder and president of the Benham Institute, she felt that she had found an advocation peculiarly adapted to her capacities, and she was already actively in correspondence with clubs of a similar character in other cities, in the hopes of forming a national organization for mutual enlightenment and support. Mrs. Earle received Selma by invitation at her lodgings the following day, and so quickly did their friendship ripen that at the end of two hours each had told the other everything. Selma was prone instinctively to regard as aristocratic and un-American any limitations to confidence. The evident disposition on the part of Mrs. Earle to expose promptly and without reserve the facts of her past and her plans for the future seemed to Selma typical of an interesting character, and she was thankful to make a clean breast in her turn as far as was possible. Mrs. Earle's domestic experience had been thorny. I had a home once, too, she said, a happy home, I, I thought. My husband said he loved me, but almost from the first we had trouble. It went on so from month to month, and finally we agreed to part. He objected, my dear, to my living my own life. He didn't like me to take an interest in things outside the house, public matters. I was elected on the school board the only woman, and he ought to have been proud. He said he was at first, but he was too fond of declaring that a woman's place is in her kitchen. One day I said to him, Ellery, this can't go on. If we can't agree, we'd better separate. A cat and dog life is no life at all. He answered back, I'm not asking you to leave me, but if you're set on it, don't let it hinder you, Margaret. You don't need a man to support you. You're as good as a man yourself. He meant that to be sarcastic, I suppose. Yes, said I. Thank God I can take care of myself, even though I am a woman. That was the end of it. 
There was no use for either of us to get excited. I packed my things, and a few mornings later I said to him, Goodbye, Ellery Earl. I wish you well, and I suppose you're my husband still, but I'm going to live my own life without let or hindrance from any man. There's your ring. My holding out the ring was startling to him, for he said, Aren't you going to be sorry for this, Margaret? No, said I. I've thought it all out, and it's best for both of us. There's your ring. He wouldn't take it, so I dropped it on the table and went out. Some people miss it, and misbelieve I was never married. That was close on to twenty years ago, and I've never seen him since. When the war broke out, I heard he enlisted, but what's become of him I don't know. Maybe he got a divorce. I've kept right on and lived my own life in my own way, and never lacked food or raiment. I'm forty-five years old, but I feel a young woman still. Notwithstanding Mrs. Earle's business-like directness and the protuberance of her bust and conclusion, by way of reasserting her satisfaction with the results of her action, there was a touch of plaintiveness in her confession which suggested the womanly author of Hints on Culture and Hygiene, rather than the man-hater. This was lost on Selma, who was fain to sympathize purely from the standpoint of righteousness. It was splendid, she said. He had no right to prevent you from living your own life. No husband has that right. Mrs. Earle brushed her eyes with her handkerchief. You mustn't think, my dear, that I'm not a believer in the home, because mine has been unhappy, because my husband didn't or couldn't understand. The true home is the inspirer and nourisher of all that is best in life, in our American life. But men must learn the new lesson. There are many homes, yours, I'm sure, where the free-born American woman has encouragement and opportunity to expand. Oh, yes, my husband lets me do as I wish. I made him promise before I accepted him that he wouldn't thwart me, that he'd let me live my own life. Selma was so appreciative of Mrs. Earle and so energetic and suggestive in regard to the scope of the Institute that she presently chosen a member of the council, which was the body charged with the supervision of the fortnightly entertainments. It occurred to her as a brilliant conception to have Littleton address the club on art, and she broached the subject to him when he next returned to Benham, and appeared before the church committee. He declared that he was too busy to prepare a suitable lecture, but he yielded finally to her plea that he owed it to himself to let the women of Benham hear his views and opinions. They are wives and they are mothers, said Selma sententiously. It was a woman's vote, you remember, which elected you to build our church. You owe it to art, don't you think so? A logical appeal to his conscience was never lost on Littleton. Besides, he was glad to oblige Mrs. Babcock, who seemed so earnest in her desire to improve the aesthetic taste of Benham. Accordingly, he yielded. The lecture was delivered a few weeks later and was a marked success for Littleton's earnestness of theme and manner was relieved by a graceful, sympathetic delivery. Selma, whose social aplomb was increasing every day, glided about the rooms with a contented mien, receiving felicitations and passing chocolate. She enjoyed the distinction of being the god behind the curtain. A few days later, the knowledge that she herself was to become a mother was forced upon her attention, and was a little irksome. Of necessity, her new interests would be interrupted. Though she did not question that she would perform maternal duties fitly and fully, they seemed to her less particularly adapted to her than concerns of the intellect and the spirit. However, the possession of a little daughter was more precious to her than she had expected, and the consciousness that the tiny doll which lay upon her breast was flesh of her flesh and bone of her bone affected her agreeably, 
and stirred her imagination. It should be reared from the start in the creed of soul independence and expansion, and she herself would find a new and sacred duty in catering to the needs of this budding intelligence. So she reflected as she lay in bed, but the outlook was a little marred by the thought that the baby was the living image of its father, broad-featured and burly, not altogether desirably cast of countenance for a girl. What a pity, when it might just as well have looked like her. Babcock, on his part, was transported by paternity. He was bubbling over with appreciation of the new baby, and fondly believed it to be a human wonder. He was solicitous on the score of its infantile ailments, and loaded it with gifts and toys beyond the scope of its enjoyment. He went about the house whistling more exuberantly than ever. There was no speck on his horizon, no fly in his pot of ointment. It was he who urged that the child should be christened promptly, though Dr. Glynn was not disposed to dwell on the clerical barbarism as to the destiny of unbaptized infants. Babcock was cultivating a conservative method. He realized that there was no object in taking chances. Illogical as was the theory that a healthy dog which had bitten him should be killed at once, lest it subsequently go mad, he contract hydrophobia. He was too happy and complacent to run the risk of letting it live. So it was regard to the baby. But Selma chose the name. Babcock preferred in this order other Selma, Sophia after his mother, or a compliment to the wife of the President of the United States. But Selma as the result of grave thought, selected Muriel Grace. Without knowing exactly why, she asked Mrs. Taylor to be godmother. The ceremony was solemn and inspiring to her. She knew from the glass in her room that she was looking very pretty, but she was weak and emotional. The baby behaved admirably, even when Louis, trembling with pride, held it out to Mr. Glynn for baptism, and held it so that the blood rushed to its head. I baptize thee in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. She was happy, and the tears were in her eyes. The divine blessing was upon her and her house, and after all, baby was a darling, and her husband a kind, manly soul. With the help of heaven, she would prove herself their good angel. When they returned home, there was a whistle of old silver of light, graceful design, a present from Mrs. Taylor to Muriel. Her aunt, Mrs. Farley, compared this to its disparagement with one already purchased by Lewis, on the gaudily embossed stem of which perched a squirrel with a nut in its mouth. But Selma shook her head. Both of you are wrong, she said with authority. This is a beauty. It doesn't look new to my eyes, protested Mrs. Farley. Of course it isn't new. I shouldn't wonder if she bought it while traveling abroad in Europe. It's artistic, and I shan't let baby destroy it. Babcock glanced from one gift to the other quizzically. Then, by way of disposing of the subject, he seized his daughter in his arms and, dandling her toward the ceiling, cried, If it's artistic things we must have, this is the most artistic thing which I know of in the wide world. Aren't you, little sugar-plum? Mrs. Farley, with motherly distrust of man, apprehensively followed with her eyes and arms the gyrations of fall and rise, but Selma, though she saw, pursued the current of her own thought which prompted her to examine her wedding ring. She was thinking that, compared with Mrs. Taylor's, it was a cartwheel, a clumsy, conspicuous band of metal, instead of a delicate hoop. She wondered if Lewis would object to exchange it for another. With the return of her strength, Selma took up again eagerly the tenor of her former life, aiding and abetting Mrs. Earle in the development of the Institute. 
The President was absorbed in enlarging its scope by the enrollment of more members, and the establishment of classes in a variety of topics, such as literature, science, philosophy, current events, history, art, and political economy. She aimed to construct a club which should be social and educational in the broadest sense, by mutual cooperation and energy. Selma, in her eagerness to make the most of the opportunities for culture offered, committed herself to two of the new topic classes, Italian and Grecian art, and the governments of civilization, and as a consequence found some difficulty in accommodating her baby's nursing hours to these engagements. It was indeed a relief to her when the doctor presently pronounced the supply of her breast milk inadequate. She was able to assuage Lewis's regret that Muriel should be brought up by hand with the information that a, that a large percentage of Benham and American mothers were similarly barren, and that bottle babies were exceedingly healthy. She had gleaned the first fact from the physician, the second from Mrs. Earle, and her own conclusion on the subject was that a lack of milk was an indication of feminine evolution from the status of the brute creation, a sign of spiritual as opposed to animal quality. Selma found Mrs. Earle sympathetic on this point, and also practical in her suggestions as to the rearing of infants by artificial means, recommendations concerning which were contained in one of her series of papers entitled Mother Lore. The theory of the new classes was cooperation, that is, the members successively, turn by turn, lectured on the topic, and all were expected to study in the interim as to be able to ask questions and discuss the views of the lecturer. Concerning both Italian and Grecian art and the governments of civilization, Selma knew that she had convictions in the abstract. But when she found herself face to face with a specific lecture on each subject, it occurred to her as wise to supplement her ideas by a little preparation. The nucleus of a public library had been recently established by Joel Flagg and placed at the disposal of Benham. Here, by means of an encyclopedia and two handbooks, Selma was able in these forenoons to compile a paper satisfactory to her self-esteem on the dynasties of Europe and their inferiority to the United States. But her other task was illumined for her by a happy incident, the promise of Littleton to lend her books. Indeed, he seemed delightfully interested in both of her classes, which was especially gratifying in view of the fact that Mrs. Taylor, who was a member of the Institute, had combated the new program on the plea that they were attempting too much and that it would encourage superficiality. But Littleton seemed appreciative of the value of the undertaking, and he made his promise good forthwith by forwarding to her a package of books on art, among them two volumes of Ruskin. Selma, who had read quotations from Ruskin on one or two occasions, and believed herself an admirer of, and tolerably familiar with, his writings, was thrilled. She promptly immersed herself in stones of Venice and seven lamps of architecture, sitting up late at night to finish them. When she had read these in the article in the encyclopedia under the head of art, she felt bursting with her subject, and eager to air her knowledge before the class. Her lecture was acknowledged to be the most stirring and thorough of the course. Reports of its success came back to her from Littleton, who offered to assist his pupil further by practical demonstration of the eternal architectural fitness and unfitness of things, especially the latter, in walks through the street of Benham, but six times in as many months, however, there was no suggestion of coquetry on either side in these excursions, yet each enjoyed them. 
Littleton's own work was beginning to assume definite form, and his visits to Benham became of necessity more frequent. Flying trips, but he generally managed to obtain a few words with Selma. He continued to lend her books, and he invited her criticism on the slowing, growing church edifice. The responsibility of critic was an absorbing sensation to her, but the stark glibness of tongue which stood her in good stead before the classes of the Institute failed her in his presence, the presence of real knowledge. She wished to praise, but to praise discriminately, with the cant of aesthetic appreciation, so that he should believe that she knew. As for the church itself, she was interested in it. It was fine, of course, but that was secondary consideration compared with her emotions. His predilection in her favor, however, readily made him deaf in regard to her utterances. He scarcely heeded her halting, solemn, counterfeit transcendentalisms, or rather they passed muster as subtle and genuine, so spellbound was he by the Delphic beauty of her criticizing expression. It was enough for him to watch her as he stood with her head on one side, and the worried archangel looked transfiguring her profile. What she said was lost in his reverie as to what she was, what she represented in his contemplation. As she looked upon his handiwork, he was able to view it with different eyes, to discern its weaknesses, and to gain fresh inspiration from her presence. He felt that it was growing on his hands, and that he should be proud of it. And though perhaps he was conscious in his inner soul that she was more to him than another man's wife should be, he knew, too, that no word or look of his had offended against the absent husband. End of chapter 5